You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 20th of February. Today, we came to you live from Gulf Food in Dubai's World Trade Center. A very busy World Trade Center, I have to say. I don't think I've ever seen Gulf Food so busy in all the years that I have been down here. Um, but we had plenty to talk about. We were right in the middle of the event. Sustainability experts, food manufacturers, ministers, even farmers crossed our paths. And one of our top speakers this morning was a keynote speaker, Daniel Levine. He's a futurist with the Avant Garde Institute. He looks at top trends around the world and he discussed what the foods of the future will taste like and how they're going to be packaged. He also talked about the impact of the weight loss drugs like Azempic, and that got us thinking. So we invited Ali Hashmi onto the program. Now he's from the Glucare Integrated Diabetes Center, and he gave us an update on just how popular these weight loss drugs are proving right here in the UAE. Meanwhile, it turns out, according to a new study, that Abu Dhabi's roads need a little bit of a rethink. We got all the details with the author of that study, Dr. Apostolos Kyriasis of Abu Dhabi University. Meanwhile, we also found out how food trade affects international relations and reputations. That was with the UK's Trade Commissioner. And we checked out the local restaurant scene as Dubai's restaurants rise to global recognition. I spoke to Chef Russell Impiazzi about what it takes to stand out in a crowded and competitive market. Plus, slightly off the food subject, we also found out all about that record-breaking drone show that took over the Burj Al Arab's helipad, chatting to Marco Niedermeyer, the producer of AO Drones and Multimedia. One of the keynote speakers is Daniel Levine. He's a futurist with the Avant Guide Institute, and they look at top trends around the world. This week, he's here to talk about foods and flavors and how they're likely to change in the future. I caught up with him a little bit earlier, and he told me how he figures out these future trends. We have thousands of trend spotters around the world who every day are sending us things that they're finding that are new and unique and unusual in some way. And what we do back in our office is when we come across things in the same psychographic or demographic or geographic, we, we recognize these as emerging trends. And if you're a business person, you can imagine how valuable it is to see these trends as they're coming up rather than in hindsight. And so do trends tend to start in one part of the world and then travel around? So for example, does America kick off the trend and then Europe catches it and then Asia catches it and then it goes elsewhere? Or is that not the case at all? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Georgia. And the thing is that that used to be the case a few decades ago. And now, you know, because of media, it ricochets around the world uh, so fast that sometimes it's even difficult to find where trends have begun. Um, But we also see that different trends start in different places. So there's trends that will come out of Asia that then take over the world. There's trends that start in the United States that migrate across to Europe. And there's trends that start here or, 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 or are bolstered here in Dubai and the UAE that are then picked up by the rest of the world. We're specifically going to talk to you today about 
trends in flavors and foods, because of course that is why you're here in Dubai to attend Gulf Food. You're giving a keynote speech there. And I know that your uh, talks are always very popular. I don't want to give too much away, obviously, but uh, as far as what these sort of up and coming food trends are, what, you know, what might we see in the restaurants of the near future here in the Middle East? Yes, well, I think in both restaurants and stores as well, one of the big things we're seeing is the growth of functional foods. And functional foods are foods that don't just taste good, but they also do something for you. And so um, a good way to think about it, it sort of started with with perhaps Red Bull, which um, wasn't just a drink, but a drink that gave you wings. And now functional foods have They've just sort of gone over the top. We're seeing sodas that contain 100% of daily vitamins. We're seeing drinks that are made for gut health, cookies that are being marketed that they're you should eat them because they're good for your gut with probiotics and prebiotics. Um, and just like energy drinks, we're now seeing this year starting gut shots, little bottles that you just sort of drop down in one shot. But that functionality is also morphing into other ideas. Perhaps many of your listeners are familiar with the idea of, of blue zone eating. And these, are, these are, are zones around the world that have been identified for people who live a very long time. And so what's becoming fashionable in food is creating foods that come from those diets. And those are places like Japan and uh, uh, an island off off Italy. There's a, there's a few places around the world that have been identified that way. And then a, another major thing that I'm, I'm sure you're seeing also is alcohol-free cocktails. We're now seeing menus expanding, not just here in the UAE or even this part of the world, but, but ar- around the world. And that's being mimicked in stores where we're seeing uh, alcohol-free cocktails being sold in cans in stores. Of course, we've seen a huge emphasis just recently on eco-friendly lifestyles, on sustainability. Are we seeing the influence of that on the products that we might buy in the supermarkets? A few years ago, the big trend we were all talking about was green. And now that's turned sort of inward on us about not just doing things that are healthy for our environment, but doing things that are healthy for ourselves. And I'm not saying that green has gone away because actually another trend in foods that the, the, the packaging is changing for the foods that people are buying in stores. And now we're seeing packaging made of sugar cane plastic that you're told right on the container to trash with your food or flexible paper film that feels just like plastic but it recycles with paper and again we're going to be told that just throw it in the recycle with the paper and we're seeing entire countries that are aiming for no plastic trash at all for the whole country like south korea is leading this they're saying no plastic trash made by the entire country by 2050 that's a pretty amazing goal So you've talked there about the transparency when it comes to packaging, but how about the ingredients themselves? How about the origins of the food? Yeah, well, you know, one thing that I think is interesting is that what's being sold in shops is being more clearly identified of how it was created and how it got to us, and sometimes in very creative ways. In some countries, they're selling tins of tuna fish that have codes on the on the tins that you can put into the internet and find out exactly where the fish from that in that can came from where it was 
the factory in which it was canned. Is, I mean, is that too much information for your tuna sandwich, perhaps? But it's a <laughs> good representation of the idea that smart marketers are understanding that consumers want transparency because transparency equals trust. And we're looking for that trust in every part of our lives, including including our food. We've spoken so far about the sort of the changes of things that are being introduced. Do you think we might see things being taken away? Do you think, for example, people are going to be more likely to be vegan or more likely to be vegetarian? Do you think people will be eating less meat, for example? Yeah, you know, Georgia, what's so interesting to me in the trends world is to see that trends are not siloed by industry. Trends are about what people are thinking and feeling. And we're all looking for those same trends to be answered in every part of our lives, the, the cars we drive, the clothes we wear, and the, the, the food we eat as well. And so this overarching trend about sustainability and health and, and, and green living, we're seeing throughout our lives. And of course, in the food industry, it's, it's no different. It's not like we're looking for something completely different there. But when you ask about you know what what will be taken away, yeah, I think what is be, being taken away is more fake things, more processed things, things that consumers don't consider to be clean in some way. And then there's also a really interesting technological perspective of that too. A, a big thing that I believe will be changing food for many people in the next few years is the rise of Ozempic. And the fact that so many people are taking this, this drug to help them lose weight. And I think that will have knock-on effects in the food that will be served in restaurants and what we'll be seeing in, in groceries as well. Obviously, here in the UAE, specifically in Dubai, there are so many amazing restaurants. And it's there's something known as the Dubai Stone, which the idea is, is that you move here and you immediately put on a stone because the, the restaurants funny. are so good and everyone goes for brunches. So I think in many ways, Zempic is proving very popular. How do you think that's going to impact on the products that we actually see in our supermarkets? Well, I think, first of all, it's going to start impacting with the way our products are being marketed to us. So, you know, for, for the longest time, products have been marketed us to like, it's so craveable, you can't eat just one, you have to, you have to fill up on these, you, you, you taste this, and you're just going to want to gorge on it. And I think that that kind of marketing is old school marketing with with those impact, because that's, and even for people who are not taking that drug, that's just not part of the ethos any longer. Um, it's not about, um, you know, stuffing in as much as you can, but the change is towards, towards quality. Um, and so, you know, what's happening is culture is changing. Culture changes every day imperceptibly. When you look back 10 years, it's obvious, but when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see that change. And we're in the middle of that kind of a change right now with food marketing. And what it will mean in supermarkets and restaurants, I believe we'll be seeing changes in, in portion sizes, changes in the amount of calories that are going into to each portion as well. And just connected to that idea of transparency, being more clear about what people are putting into their bodies. So that is Daniel Levine. He's a futurist with the Avant Guide Institute, and they look at top trends from around the world. And he is just one of the keynote speakers taking to the stage down here at Gulf Food at Dubai's World Trade Center. One hot topic really high on the agenda is changing consumer behavior and the impact of weight loss drugs like Ozempic on the industry. 
but just how popular are these drugs proving in the UAE? Now, I think the last time we discussed this topic was about six months ago, and we invited Ali Hashemi, who's the co-founder and chairman of Glucare Integrated Diabetes Center, onto the program. Well, he's back again. I spoke to him a little bit earlier, and he told me the popularity of the medications means there is a nationwide shortage once again. So about six months ago, there was a global shortage of the drugs because so many people had started using them. That shortage got better as the manufacturers started supplying a little bit more to the region and ramping up their own manufacturing. But lately, again, now we're seeing out of stock across the board. So we, we have stock because we make sure to buffer our inventory, especially for our diabetic patients. But as of last week, massive shortages in the market on, on the GLPs again. So I think inventory management is, is an important issue when it comes to clinics and those dealing with people who have a continuous need for these medications. But as far as trends go, I only see it increasing, both on the diabetic side and on the weight management side. Unfortunately, what we're not seeing is an improvement in the behavior of both prescribers. So, you know, a lot of GPs are prescribing these drugs without giving their patients the adequate behavioral change guidance. And you can't necessarily blame them because they don't have the time to do that. And insurance companies actually don't pay for that time either. Consumers themselves are often circumventing their physicians to go directly to pharmacy and buy these drugs. You can still do that. We, we periodically sort of secret shopper test pharmacies. Just we call them up and we ask them if we can get Monjaro or Ozempic and Nine times out of 10, 10 minutes later, it's delivered to your doorstep, which is, which is a problem. These are not drugs that should be taken without proper clinical guidance and without a parallel behavioral change initiative that is driven collaboratively with the care provider. Can I just check what the law says about whether or not these medicines should be sold over the counter or whether you should require a prescription? Look, as far as I know, these are prescription drugs, right? So it should require an RX in order to get them from the pharmacy. It hasn't stopped pharmacies from selling them. Now, the manufacturers themselves are not happy with this practice, and they're starting to limit supply of the drugs to a smaller subset of trusted partners like ourselves, who they know will prescribe these drugs you know, responsibly, and more importantly, alongside the drug, engage the patient on all the behavioral change necessary to make the weight loss a lasting change in their lives. So what can happen if you take the drug without doctor's supervision? There's two issues. One is that most patients who just take the drug and don't engage in foundational lifestyle and behavior change will regrain the weight when they come off the drug. And no one wants to stay on these drugs forever. First of all, they cost a lot. And so it's a significant cash burn that you don't, you don't want to have go on forever. So when people come off these drugs, if they haven't dosed properly, if they haven't changed the contributing factors that led to the weight gain in the first place, many of those patients will regain a substantial amount of weight. That's the first thing. The second issue is the type of tissues that you're losing. So part of it is fat mass, but a significant portion of it is muscle mass. And when we started applying these drugs for weight management a few years ago, we were seeing about 33% of the total weight lost as muscle mass, and that alarmed us. So we modified all of our protocols, including dosing, but also recommendations that are non-drug related, i.e. diet, nutrition, exercise, all of that. And we managed to reduce that from 33% down to today about 20%, which is probably among the best in the world. If you look at other prescribers, published data 
is upwards of 40, 50% in some cases. So that is catastrophic. You don't want to be losing your muscle mass because in the long run, that defeats the entire purpose of improving your underlying basal metabolic system. The other issue is you actually don't know how to dose yourself. So there is a minimum dose, and sure, most people do start on that. But going from the minimum to the maximum should be a very carefully calibrated increment. And we do that with continuous testing every month of our patients. So every month, the patient has a body composition analysis. 24-7, the patient has access to the care team. And that's, that's really important. It's important to have an ecosystem of individuals around you on this journey in addition to the medication. But we use not just physicians. We have health coaches, nutritionists, dietitians. We have a master's in sports science to help our members figure out what type of fitness regimen fits their lifestyle. You know, like a lot of folks that are on these medications don't have gym memberships, right? And so getting in the gym is, in and of itself is a major change in, in lifestyle and behavior. So there's, there's a lot that goes into transforming yourself using these medications, but I can't emphasize enough, it's not a shortcut. It feels like a shortcut because it's so easy, once a week injection and you get these magical results, but it shouldn't be treated as such. There are a lot of detractors for these medicines. Um, I mean, obviously there's the argument that it's, when there are shortages, you're taking them away from people who really need them because they have diabetes. But there's the secondary one, which is that they are a short-term fix. And ultimately the majority of people who use them to lose weight then put that weight on. Where do you stand on that? Do you think they're going to solve the problem of obesity in the Western world? Or do you think we need to be a little bit more circumspect? Yeah. So starting with the big question first, no, they aren't going to solve obesity. Obesity is not a problem of having the best drugs, the best tech, the best anything in terms of innovations. The obesity epidemic is a consequence of a lot of different factors that have evolved over the last few decades. Our genetics haven't changed. You know, we are the same sort of DNA profile as we were in the 1950s, but Today, we are, the, we are fatter and more diabetic than we've ever been in human history in terms of the percentage of the population. And, and that is more a consequence of the evolution, candidly, of our food supply. So I would, you know, if we're, if we're thinking 50,000 feet, what's the problem that we need to solve? It's, it's not drugs. It's we need better food and food consumption and food access. But solving that problem is above most of our pay grades, right? That is an industry-wide problem. So the drug is a useful tool in the battle against those confounding factors. On an individual basis, you can solve the food problem. You know, to, to your second question, where do we stand in terms of the impact on diabetics who require these medications? Yes, it has been a problem where diabetics who rely on these medications haven't been able to get them. Specialized providers like ourselves, if they're smart about it, will buffer. So we carry a very significant amount of inventory that we buy in bulk from the manufacturers just to plan for these kinds of outages. That is hard for smaller clinics because it's a very, very significant amount of working capital that you just have to park in your pharmacy. And most folks can't do that. With respect to the side effects and the consequence of coming off, I'll speak as a patient because I was patient zero on our own medicated weight loss program. And the reason was I was eligible. You know, I had gotten to a point during COVID where my weight had crept up, which was a problem. I was almost obese, according to my BMI, which was 29.2. I had high uric acid. I had a fatty liver and my cholesterol had started going up for the first time in my life. So I met a lot of the criteria required to be on a GLP. And my own experience was initially a failure because although... I lost almost 40 pounds, almost, you know, 15, 15 or so kilos in about six months. 
when I came off the medication, about six months later, I hadn't really done the lifestyle changes that I needed to do, partially driven by injury. I wasn't able to get into the gym due to travel. My food habits were not optimal. And I regained at least half of the weight. And for me and my team, that was a red flag. And this was three years ago. We, we were already starting to think about reconfiguring our entire approach to using these drugs based on my own experience as a patient. And I had lost several kilos of muscle mass, which for me was a deal breaker. So those criticisms are valid. And I think these are things that every patient should have in the back of their minds. The objective here is not to lose weight. The objective here is to expand your overall health span. So you live a higher quality life for longer. And the metabolic transformation that these drugs can help drive is incredible, but it's only useful if it's sustainable. So that is Ali Hashmi. He's the co-founder and chairman of GluCare, speaking to me right here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. <laughs> take a look at something different now. We're going to take a look at one of the top local stories making headlines this week because it has emerged that Abu Dhabi's road network needs a bit of a rethink. Researchers from Abu Dhabi University and also the London School of Economics have found those arterial roads, so those are the sort of the main ones, the main roads, the motorways, while they're good at connecting areas that are far apart, they're actually separating next-door neighbourhoods. And that means that more provisions need to be made for cyclists, pedestrians and, of course, people using public transport. To find out a little bit more about the study, earlier I spoke to Dr Apostolos Kyriasis of Abu Dhabi University. Now, he's one of the key authors of that research, and the paper itself is called Roads Disconnecting Cities and Neighbourhoods, a Socio-Spatial Study of Abu Dhabi. And he explained some of the key findings of their research. Contemporary Abu Dhabi was designed in the 60s and the 70s on a grid of streets that was, up to that point, far more liberal and open and inclusive as a street design, as a city design, inspired by Sheikh Zayed, of course, and implemented and designed by colleagues of that time, the most famous one being Abdurrahman Makhlouf. In the 90s, this thing changed, and Abu Dhabi expanded in the suburbs, and it followed a different approach, a different pattern of urban growth in which highways do not form grids anymore, but they just connect bigger parts of the country and different cities. And Abu Dhabi was building its suburbs along those highways, more or less following the Dubai example, but uh, this led to a radical change on the form of Abu Dhabi. So the suburbs that we know today in Abu Dhabi resemble a lot the ones in Dubai, and it is a condition in which you have an urban highway that connects two parts of the city or two different cities, Abu Dhabi and Dubai, Abu Dhabi and Suikhan or Alain or the Western region. And all the suburbs are built left and right from that highway, which means that if you want to connect those suburbs, you have a major obstacle that you have to overcome. And it's impossible really to do that the way it is right now. So... The whole idea, the whole condition of the streetscape on how it used to be and how it was converted after the 90s has completely changed the way we, we see cities now and the way cities work. 
and the expansion of the city after the 90s in the suburbs, in the mainland of Abu Dhabi, has followed this case ever since. This very low density with ultra big highways, major distances in between that are very difficult to bridge and connect, giving that sense of discontinuity, this, this sense of interruption every single time. So it sounds like that in many ways, Abu Dhabi has been almost a victim of its own expansion success. Is there a way to combat this situation? Is there a solution to this situation? Well, actually, this is a nice phrase, and thank you very much for putting it this way. It has been a victim of its own uh, evolution, especially because of the fact that it has been growing so fast. And as I like saying, it grows so fast that it is not able to, to learn from its own mistakes. So one key way to, to approach this is to somehow, of course, make changes on the way the roads are designed. There are a lot of intricacies there. I will not get into the details of road design. But uh, with regards to architecture and urban planning, I would say that it is the very low densities that have somehow brought us to this issue. And they have been the major element of other issues as well, like social alienation, big time distances. So you spend more time, more energy in covering distances to and from the city. So this makes it completely unsustainable. One solution could be proposed. It could be to build and design a city based on higher densities, which means more people in a specific area, not too many though, but more than it is now in the suburbs and places, areas of those suburbs that can become like hubs, like centers of attention where public transportation would go there and deliver public transportation to and from the city and then to the local networks towards housing, towards the neighborhoods. Is there also a way of connecting these neighborhoods, perhaps through pedestrian crossings or cycle paths? You know, can you resolve the problem that way, potentially? You can. Abu Dhabi is actually doing a good work right now, uh, trying to establish a network of bicycle trucks and well-designed pedestrian walkways and all the like. But the problem lies on connecting two different neighborhoods that lie on different sides of a highway, for example. The way highways are constructed right now, it would cost too much and it would need too many bridges or underpasses to connect, for example, Khalifa City to the future Zayed City, etc., 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 or Raha Beach to Khalifa City, uh, just to give an example. And those underpasses or overpasses would be too long. They would have to be too frequent because they would serve a lot of population, etc., etc. And people would not be so much encouraged to cross them because of the weather, especially during the summer months, which raises other issues as well. So all of those elements come together in, in a mix of conditions that actually amplify the, the, the problem and makes us see and wonder why we lose so much space and why can't we take advantage of that space in different ways. And that is Dr. Apostolos Kyriasis of Abu Dhabi University, one of the key authors of that study on Abu Dhabi's roads. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8.
Hello there and welcome back to the agenda. We are broadcasting live today from Gulf Food. It is, of course, one of the region's biggest trade fairs of its kind. Hugely exciting to be down here. And we are grabbing fantastic speakers at every single stage of the event, pulling them onto the radio and asking them all sorts of probing questions. And in fact, my next guest has just actually come from a British embassy event where he was part of the team showing off or all of Britain's best wares. I am delighted to welcome Oliver Christian to the radio show. Oliver Christian is His Majesty's Trade Commissioner for the Middle East and Pakistan and His Majesty's Consul General to Dubai for the British government. Oliver, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Georgia. And I'm really, really excited to be on Dubai Eye. Um, I am an avid listener. So the first thing I was told to do when I came to Dubai is make sure you listen to Dubai Eye. So thank you for having me. Very good to have you here, and of course, very good to have you participating in Gulf Food. How important are trade events like this for British trade? I mean, look, let's look at the figures. Um, in 2022, it was uh, we were securing about uh, £877 million worth of, um, of value from exporting food and drink products to, uh, to the UA, uh, to GCC. Um, and in terms of the UAE, that's about half um, the amount uh, into the UAE. So it is huge for the UK. Um, and what we're doing here is showcasing incredible British products. Um, we are showing off the best of what England, Scotland and Wales have to, have to offer um, uh, the region. And in particular, in UAE, there is a just a burgeoning, hungry market for uh, for the products that we've got to 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 sell. Whether it's Welsh lamb, whether it's um, British beef, um, uh, Scottish shortcakes, um, and uh, biscuits and other things, um, uh, they are all here, ready to be sold um, to the UAE market. So the UK has a very good um, foothold in the UAE. Are you using that as a stepping stone to the rest of the Middle East? Is that the role the UAE plays? So I think what's important to remember about the UAE market is that customers here want quality and they want the best quality, which comes with incredible taste. And that's what we are showcasing today. I mean, there's also a quantity issue here as well, because um, uh, we were talking to the team earlier. Um, I think it's 8,000 tonnes of chocolate were uh, brought into the UAE from the UK last year. Top quality British chocolate. Um, uh, and, um, and we're really proud that we are uh, here in market talking about a value proposition um, in terms of um, bringing uh, great premium products into the uh, into the market, but also a volume proposition of bringing uh, being able to fill shelves with British products in a way that um, uh, we haven't been able to do before. We've heard a little bit about what you got on offer in Britain. I mean, I'm British, so I'm probably a little bit biased on this. I know, uh, and I actually grew up on a farm as well, so I so I know quite a bit about the values of, of, of British husbandry when it comes to farming and things like that. Um, is that one of the things that attracts customers to British products? I think so, whether it's welfare, whether it's sustainability, whether it is about the provenance and the history that comes with those products as well. But again, it really is about taste. It's about having the best quality and ensuring that we are turning 
the rain that falls in the UK quite uh, quite a lot in um, in many people's minds. That rain feeds the grass, that then feeds an incredible dairy industry that's producing over 700 different types of cheeses coming from the UK, producing uh, Welsh lamb from the from the valleys, which is uh, which which just tastes so different to anything else that's on the market. Um, and I think that direct link between um, the UK and those rainy, drizzly days and the incredible food and drink that's coming out of it as a result, um, a really good demonstrator of, um, of what the UK has to offer. And also, we are not just about, uh, you know, hot pots and, and the, the usual things that people think of when it comes to uh, UK, uh, UK food and drink. We are providing those incredible products, but they are being used here in Dubai every day by incredible British chefs um, like Chef Russell at the Obelisk Sofitel um, and Vinit Batiar, um, uh, in, and they are using those products to create the most innovative dishes, the most delicious dishes um, in, uh, in Dubai and across the UAE, which we're really proud of. In many ways, I think Britain isn't maybe known for having the most incredible restaurant quality food. Now, I know that some people would disagree with me on that, but I think, you know, the French are known for being fabulous and the Japanese are renowned for their, you know, intricate little meals. Britons are often known for sort of comfort food, maybe. Is that an image that the embassy, is that an image that you guys are keen to dispel? So I think, um, I think I would be one of those people that would disagree with you, actually, um, because, uh, just go to the uh, the Atlantis, the Royal, and what is in prime position at that, uh, along with incredible restaurants from around the world, right at the top, in the middle, is Heston Blumenthal's restaurant. He is changing the perception of British produce around the world, and we're really proud of that. Um, and he's a great name, but there's also many other ways that we're doing that, whether it's um, bringing um, uh, new products into market, um, like today we've been showcasing non-alcoholic cosmopolitans, um, we've been showcasing um, uh, using uh, food that would otherwise be going into waste, actually using those, uh, those products and turning them into new value propositions, which are, um, which are for UAE palettes. Um, I think that's. Uh, I think that is us innovating in the UK and um, and selling to an, uh, a market that wants that that new flavour. You touched on a couple just then of uh, new future trends that we've got to look forward to. Obviously, you've been doing a, a deep dive into all of the new British products on offer at the moment. Have you had a sneak peek on what we could be looking forward to? You know, in the coming years, if you know, if you go into the supermarket, new things on the shelves. Well, you've just raised a really important point, actually. Um, talking to many uh, people around the city, one of the complaints that, that I've had was that um, uh, over the last 10 years, it's actually been really difficult to get hold of some products and some of those things from home. Um, but that's not the case any longer, and it's changing. And we're improving. Um, we've got a good trade flow of products um, into the UAE. And you just need to go to shops like Choitrums or... Um, uh, Spinney's or uh, the iconic British store Waitrose and you can see chefs chocker full of um, incredible British products and um, and that means that the uh, there is choice for uh, for the consumer here in the UAE um, uh, and uh, and we're there to support that market and sell those UK goods. 
Interesting stuff indeed. And plenty more on the subject of food and future trends here at Gulf Food. Huge thanks there to Oliver Christian, His Majesty's Trade Commissioner for the Middle East and Pakistan, and His Majesty's Consul General to Dubai, of course, uh, for the British government. We are presenting live from Gulf Food. It is I think the region's biggest trade fair, and I'm delighted to say that I have managed uh, to corner Chef Russell Impiazzi. He is executive chef at the Sofitel Dubai, the Obelisk. He has been been keeping busy this morning, hosting a series of live cooking stations at a British embassy event uh, promoting UK food. Uh, Chef Russell, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us here on the agenda. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to be here. I had a great morning this morning. Um, look, it's always good to talk about great British products as, as, as chefs. It's what we want to talk about. It's what we want to use. And it's been a lot of fun this morning. Of course, you are currently executive chef at Sofitel Dubai, the Obelisk. It is one of your many positions here in the UAE. You, you've been here for many years. Top of the agenda here at Gulf Food is, of course, sustainability. And that is uh, something that you have been promoting in your restaurants for many years, in fact. Yeah, it's been kind of been part and parcel of my career for the last 10 or 15 years. It's, it's something that's always been there, something that's always been really important for me, and it's really great that, that Dubai's finally really taking it seriously as they need to. It's a long way to go, but it's really good to see the conversation really, really getting great traction. How can you make restaurants sustainable when you've got, especially here in the UAE, when you have people demanding oysters from France and caviar from Russia and saffron from Iran? But that's also the magic of Dubai, right? Everything is in moderation in my eyes. Um, don't take it away, but I think explain the story behind it and really try to tell a better, a better local produce story as well. There's, the narrative here is, is, is getting there. The produce is getting stronger. It's more widely available. And my advice is really just, just get involved. Try it, buy it, taste it, because really ultimately flavor rules and will dictate what you buy. Um, but even, even on your weekly shop, you know, have a look what's local on our doorstep but from a consumer basis and then take that with you in your restaurant journey. It's, uh, it's important. And, and like I say, the flavor wins every time. Do you think customers are more interested now, restaurant goers that is, in the origin of the food? Do you think they care whether it's got food miles on it? Do you think they care whether it's organic? I've seen a shift definitely which is great to see. Um, It's definitely got stronger over the last few years. We certainly get more asked more questions and rightly so. Be curious, ask the right questions and put the pressure on us and on us to make sure that we're doing the right thing with what we buy, how we buy and we're buying the most ethical produce we can possibly find ultimately for, for a great consumer experience. Is it top of mind for everybody? I guess not. Uh, but if you had a bad day at work and you just want to go and level off a bit of steam with, with a great dinner with friends, then, then who am I to argue? But, but ask the questions when you are in restaurants. It's important. Now, we've just done a live cooking station here at the British Embassy event. And one of the items that you used was what I call mango fairy dust. Uh, But what was great about that was it really indicated how you use every single bit of every single ingredient. Well, that's important too, right? It, at the end of the day, it, it is money. You know, mangoes aren't cheap. And that's just one, one example. So what we do is we just take every time you've probably peeled an, 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 a mango at home and you, you're always left with that little bit of, of flesh on, on the rind or around, around the stone, scrape it off with a spoon and we just dehydrate that and make a, a wonderful powder that's really, really sweet as well. And it's great, great as a topping. It's absolutely delicious. It tastes like 
mango icing sugar, but somehow better. It's, it's amazing stuff. Now, obviously, it's hard to stand out in this market. And that is one of the big, uh, the other big topics here at Gulf Food is how to stay ahead of the trends. You know, what are the new influences coming in? You know, what are the, what's going to be big in the coming years? Because if you can put your finger on that, then you've got your restaurant sorted. Uh, it's a difficult thing to ask someone to look into a crystal ball, but that's what I'm going to ask you to do. <laughs> Look, it's a big question. A restaurant experience is, is, is becoming so much more than the food. You know, it's the service, the lighting, the ambience, the mood, um, the tabletop. The, the, the whole experience needs to matter. Ultimately, it's about the food and about the service as well. Um, but look, it, it's, it's not easy to get it right. And a lot of people do get it right. But I've seen so many restaurants just, just fail on one or two areas. And it makes such a difference. But for me, as, as a chef, ingredients matter and always will do. Getting, make sure that your fundamentals are there and you've got a great food experience. You know, working with the service team, getting the front of house involved in making sure that whole service journey is just a great experience. There's been a lot of talk about restaurants in Dubai following the pack. You know, a restaurant makes it in another city and then we get a version of it here. There are a lot more homegrown restaurants. Do you think we've moved past that criticism? Do you think that criticism is now a bit old hat? And happily so. Um, I think, you know, what what Muhammad Afali's doing, just been listed number one in the 50 best, is huge. You know, he's, he's doing amazing stuff and so great to see him. And, and the rest of the guys doing 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 a great job and absolutely getting recognised on the, on the global food scene because it's it's absolutely right. It's right. You know, the, the talent we have here is really being showcased on a global fat platform. And, and long may it continue. I think that now we're actually sending our restaurants overseas, which is a huge compliment to our restaurant scene and, and the talent that we have here. Chef Russell in Piazzi, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for taking the time just on the sidelines of this uh, British Embassy event here at Gulf Food. Fantastic to get those insights. going to turn our attention to something completely different now because I was just wondering whether you saw that mind-boggling drone show that took over the Burj Al Arab helipad and then into our skies and our Instagram feeds last week. I'm talking of course of the dragon. Did you see the dragon? I didn't see it like for live even though I live fairly close. I saw it on Instagram though. It was a Night of the Dragon Jones show. It was basically designed to mark the Chinese New Year and it was actually a record-breaking display super impressive and we wanted to find out more about it how do you create a flying dragon from scratch well I'm joined on the line now by Marco Niedermeyer he is the producer of that show he comes from AO Drones and Multimedia Marco how are you doing Hello, very good morning. Very well indeed, Marco. Lovely to have you join us to talk about your Night of the Dragon drone show. Where on earth do you start with creating such an extraordinary Guinness World Record-breaking display? Oh, yeah, this was really a challenge because we started like almost six months ago when we got the, the request and the idea from Car Studio. They created the Costello kind and displayed the uh, most valuable golden cube on the helipad so we surrounded that was a drone show and came up with the idea because one of the days in uh, in the event was a chinese new year and uh, discussed then with bush al-arab if we do something really extraordinary which was never happened before by the way and guinness world record created a new record for this as well so we used 1500 drones circling around the uh, so some of the drone shows that i've seen the drones stay still 
you've just got dozens of them and then they turn their lights on and off and that is what creates the imagery. But in your case, the drones were all moving, which must have made it so much harder. Yeah, so as you said, so normally we have a display, we'll call it the content, like, like let's say flat in the sky. But the challenge here was as well, having the network system um, uh, new designed, redesigned, to fly the drones. We started at the Dunello Beach Hotel at the beach side. This is our, was our launch pad. And then circling, so flying around the Burj Khalifa that uh, maybe you've seen, the dragon was like climbing up the Burj Khalifa, crossed by the helipad, and then as well the pinnacle again, and then turned into the golden cube. It is, it is an absolutely stunning display. How, I mean, obvious question, how do you stop the drones crashing into each other? Oh, that's a software. So, yeah, we're for, we have to make sure that everything is aligned. And we did some testings before as well. And uh, there's a lot of uh, safety nets, let's say. Um, and uh, there was also a lot of calculations needed for the, for the, especially the wind. The wind is very, very special. They're special on top of the bush, um, the, the helipad. And uh, by the end of the day, it's then controlled by our pilots and uh, the software. I mean, when you bring in things like the weather, of course, and it has been really quite windy over the last couple of weeks, we've actually had weather in Dubai for the first time. It gives you a sense of how challenging it must have been. How many drones were involved and how long did it take you to plan? So the, the whole planning was almost six months and uh, we were on site for four or five days and used 1,500 drones, but we had to reschedule the test flights the nights before because of the heavy wind and, and uh, weather conditions. So we were able then to fly, because we have a very stable system, a uh, few drones um, just to check the file and uh, the pathway of the drones. And then we were also lucky because on the event day, we had really beautiful weather. It was almost uh, not windy and uh, was a beautiful night, perfect for a drone show. I've got about 30 seconds left with you, Marco, and it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Tell me what's next for you guys now. You know, a, a Guinness world record broken. What's the next creation for you? Next was for a big creation will be the Dubai World Cup next month. So be surprised. We have something really, really special as well there for you guys. Oh, my goodness, we'll definitely tap you again uh, for an interview. I wonder whether you'll be able to do it beforehand or will you have to keep it super secret? Is it top secret what you're going to put on? Yes, sorry to say, but we will have also Guinness World Records involved. <laughs> Ooh, that's exciting. That's a preview. We'll definitely get you on the day after. But it in your diary but Marco thank you very much indeed uh, for taking the time to chat to us this morning we really appreciate it Marco Niedermeyer there the producer of that extraordinary Night of the Dragon drone show at uh, he's from AO Drones and Multimedia and now a Guinness World Record holder you're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station this is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8 the Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10 a.m. till 1 p.m.